bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm so honored to serve as your host. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing navigating a career of executive leadership. I am so excited to have as my guest, Justin Lombardo. Justin's currently the CHRO of the Archdiocese of Chicago. He was a former priest. Okay, I've never said that about a guest before. (laughs) And he's also held prior CLO, Chief Learning Officer roles at Baptist Health, Children's Medical Center of Dallas, and Northwestern Memorial Hospital. In addition, he was a longtime learning leader at Motorola. I think it was like from 85 to 2000. So welcome, Justin. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me. Um, When you give those dates, I feel like at any given moment, I just need to sit down and take a nap. But that's okay. (laughs) No way. No way. Um, So we met, I was trying to figure it out, like 15 years ago when we were both learning leaders in large organizations We've been advisory members to the CLO magazine. Uh, We're also faculty members for the Chief Learning Officer Accelerator Program, that program helping new learning leaders get up and running. And we've been networking and colleagues and friends throughout the years. I know I have benefited so much from your advice, your humor, and just your general outlook of life. So thanks for all the coaching you've given me. Well, back at you. When I first met you, I, re- I remember calling, uh, thinking to myself, here's a woman who's grown up in an organization and helped not only transform herself, but watched and helped shape a massive global organization uh, retool itself. And I thought, wow, that's really, you know, knowing what I knew that McDonald's had a penchant at the time for uh, promoting from within and developing leaders from within, I thought, this is just great. And it, it proved to be highly beneficial for me to hear what you do um, and how you did it. I do know, though, that the one thing that we never got to is I always wanted to go into one of your outlets at McDonald's and say, OK, let's order up and see what happens. <laughs> well, it's been interesting because, you know, as, as you mentioned, my career was in one company and I needed strong networks people like you to help me because I my undergraduate degree was in HR and I know we'll get to talk about that but you know I hadn't run learning and development or you know worked in this position for a large company so having people like you that had already done things and shared things that went well and I think I I learned a lot from those that shared things like don't do this you know (laughs) it doesn't turn out nice you know that's funny You, you you talk about that but I think honestly my experience has been that that you learn most from the things that don't go well and from other people saying, hey, I tried that and it was a train wreck, so don't don't you do it. And so I agree with you. You pick up great stuff from your colleagues that are, are willing to really kind of be as open about, here's what didn't go well. 
that's always, I think, great learning for everybody. Yeah, and I tell you, the learning or training in HR industry is so fabulous with wonderful people that are willing to share. And I think that's what I've been so blessed with over the years. But we've got so much I know we can touch on. But before we get into our topics, maybe you could share with our audience a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today. Sure. My background is not in HR, nor is my background formally uh, from an academic perspective in learning. I was a Benedictine monk. Uh, and uh, during the time that I was, I pursued graduate degrees in fine arts. So um, Diana, I know you said your undergraduate was in HR and it wasn't exactly learning. And I'm sure McDonald's had to kind of adjust to that a little bit. You should have seen the look on people's faces at Motorola and in the healthcare industry when I said, well, my graduate work is in theology and the fine arts. So it was a it was a bit of a transition for people. But it, it really speaks to the point of varied career options. I started teaching and I was asked to become associate dean and director of core curriculum, which required me then to begin learning about curricula, about competencies, about the variety of ways you can construct learning. And that drove my interest in learning which then when I left the monastic life and university life um, and went into a, a private industry, it was a natural feeling that I wanted to know more about learning and experiment with that in an organization that was dedicated to it because it allows you to sort of take what you thought you knew and apply and learn new things. I was lucky enough to be one of Bill Wiggenhorn's early hires. We all know Bill Wiggenhorn is one of the kind of seminal figures uh, around learning leadership, around corporate university structures. Uh, so I was lucky to be able to apprentice there and use what I'd learned teaching, use what I'd learned in the dean's office and applying it to uh, corporate learning. And it took off from there. I enjoyed that so much. I learned more. Uh, much of it was self-taught. And I think that's a great way to pick things up. And then after uh, about 15 years at Motorola, I uh, was recruited. Oddly, I picked up the phone one day in my office, which normally I didn't do because my assistant would grab the phone calls, but she wasn't at her desk. I picked up the phone and um, it happened to be a recruiting agency that were looking very specifically for a targeted search for someone uh, to lead learning and development in a healthcare environment. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting? So we began talking and moved from there. The, the final chapter, and, and Diana, you know this, is, is for me, um, I retired six years ago from active full-time work. Uh, for me, I had discovered it was time to make the transition out of full-time work. And what I wanted to do was spend, spend the time and energy I had in volunteer work and giving back, because I felt that one of the things that's incumbent upon us as leaders who have been lucky enough and blessed enough to have mentors, to have networks that allowed us to be successful is we need to use our talents to give back. And for me, that was kind of important. And I wanted to spend time volunteering. And I volunteered at a homeless shelter uh, for teenage uh, gay and lesbian teenagers. I volunteered doing Medicare ombudsman work for senior citizens who weren't getting the right benefits and needed appeals. And I worked as the volunteer for the uh, Archdiocese of Chicago 
on an advisory board. What happened is that work went forward, then suddenly we were hit with the pandemic. And I remember what I did was with the background in healthcare, I wrote a note to the Vicar General and the Cardinal uh, and the COO and said, I think you need to open up your emergency command center because I think this is going to be bad. And I did that in the 1st of March. Um, and the response I got is, what are you talking about? And so one thing led to another and I became head of the task force for the archdiocese uh, for COVID. And the archdiocese is larger than people might think. We have roughly 17,000 employees. We have 200 schools and 300 churches that we keep going. And so I became the head of the task force on COVID. Going forward from there, uh, situation presented itself where they needed a new CHRO in the middle of the pandemic and asked me if I would take on that role as well. And I said, well, why not? Give it a try. That's my, my journey. There's something, and it, it's, it's in scripture, uh, the Christian scriptures that uh, is sometimes referred to, and it's following the cro crooked lines of God. And to some degree, that's how I kind of feel, uh, whether you call it fate or faith or whatever, that's been my career path. The crooked lines take you places that you have to be open to that you didn't know you were going to go. Yeah. But look at your background and how it prepared you for where you are today. It's so amazing when you hear people share their stories. And I tell you, as you were describing your journey, I think about when I met you and how knowledgeable you were of learning. I would have thought you had like a PhD in learning or, you know, leadership development or talent development. So I think that's a testament about how much you know and you learn. I think one of your strengths is definitely that you are an avid learner because then when you move to healthcare, it's like somebody was interacting with you and they asked me on the side, one of the students like, was he a doctor? You know, <laughs> I'm like, no, he's just really smart and he's a great <laughs> learner. <laughs> but it's interesting you say that because one of the ways I learned quite honestly, was networking. I'm a big believer reading the theory is important and doing that, but listening and talking informally to people, you seriously, to people like you and other people, you pick up so much. And, and just by hearing it, you go, okay, I need to look into that. What are they talking about with this? You know, I remember the first time somebody used the term micro learning. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I'm glad that I pursued it then to figure out what it was. So I think for me, the spark is always, what am I hearing people say that I don't understand or I think might have an application, and then I'll pursue it. To your point, and one of the things I would suggest to people that, that is critically important, if you switch industries, you must, must, must learn the industry. And you need to do it in a deliberate, planned method. So for me, when I moved into healthcare, I did nothing for the first six weeks but shadow workers from physicians through environmental service workers in the hospitals because I didn't know the operations. So I did that. I also PhD nurses on my staff, and I asked them all to start sending me clinical articles that I could read. And then once a week, they would come in and we would discuss the articles. And one of the things that I did that was really kind of, I think for me, beneficial and could be applied is, I then would have a conversation with them about what I read. And I warned them, 
the first conversation, I'm going to be 90% off base because I won't have understood most of it. But over the time, you learn it. And I kept that practice up for all 15 years. I was in healthcare. Impressive. Well, Justin, you definitely have had a long and very successful career, some really exciting positions with some incredible organizations. Can you maybe help us understand your thought process in deciding when was it time to move on to another organization or change roles? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's an interesting question because people say, how do you know it's time or, or what? Uh, For me, when I sensed that I'd done what I can do for the particular position or organization that I'm in, and I wasn't sensing that I was going to be able to make a whole lot of significant further contributions, then it was time. That that, That indicated to me something needed to change. Now, whether that meant moving into a different role in some cases, but more often than not, it's time to move to uh a a different organization. That becomes one of the critical criteria for me. Because for me, if I'm not excited about going into the office, and and, you know, that doesn't mean in a Pollyanna way of every day I get in the car and go, oh boy, I'm looking forward to a 45 minute commute before I run into this budget meeting. You know, it's like, I'm not that that kind of a lunatic. But if I'm not excited and, and interested in doing stuff at the job, because it's like, well, okay, it's not going to have much impact, then it's time for me to move. Uh, So for me, that was one of the the big things. I also know that I am very attracted to very mission-driven organizations. If there's not a a strong mission that that has some social benefit to it, then I I tend to be less passionate or um, engaged in it. What it's never been, though, is about rank. And, and, and that, for me, never was important. What I found, for me at least, was do the job you're in, and if you do it well, the next opportunity to move forward in the organization will appear. And I know for you, that's exactly what happened to you. As you tell your story about how you went forward in McDonald's, it was a fabulous story of, I did the work. And then they came to me and asked me to do this. I don't know if you have talked about that on any of your podcasts, but I think that's really a critical thing. Yeah, no, I, I think both of us have very similar things as far as a passion for working for a values organization that's mission driven. As I moved up, I was really so focused on how can I do the best job in my current yes. role and people will come after you and knock on your door. And I think that's a great strategy. But I have to say, as an executive coach, I do coach my people. Hope is not the best business strategy. You know, you want you want to have goals. You want to get out there. So um, I and think both of us were lucky and yeah. hardworking and in the right place at the right time sometimes. Yeah, and I think you're right. You still do have to have personal goals. I mean, I always wanted to be successful. I wanted to use my talents. I wanted to see how far I could progress. And I think that's good. But I I think the other piece of it is the natural trust of saying, if I'm in a good organization and I sense that I am, then I can look around and say, I bet if I do this really well, somebody's going to take notice. I remember one situation where I heard in, someone who is a, a senior manager in my organization. And, and uh, they asked to see me for a meeting. And that was great because I normally like 
to meet with them. And this was maybe four months into their time with us. Um, and this was back at Motorola. And I remember the person coming in. I thought, okay, it'll be a cool kind of conversation. And almost the first thing out of the person's mouth was, and I need to know what I need to do to get to the next level up in the organization. And I thought to myself, bless them for being ambitious, but we need to pull this way back. <laughs> so it was a good coaching moment, I think, of, of, well, you know, the first thing would be master what you're doing and let us know that yeah. you've got that. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fun kind of balance between the two. Absolutely. I remember listening to you on a panel of experts and one of the topics was like, when do you know it's time to retire or to move on? And and you said the same things, but you said one thing that really stuck with me. In addition to, you know, if you feel like you're not contributing and making a, a difference and you're not excited, I tell people you have to be jazzed up. If you're not jazzed up by what you're doing, life is too short. You need to reevaluate. But you said something and it fits underneath there. You said, if you see the same problems coming up and you're not energized by finding the solution because you think you've already done it, you need to take a hard look at yourself and think, is this for me? And I remember I was in my in, in a career where I was starting to feel like that. Like I've seen that, done that. And you're not as patient when people are explaining things. And I thought, wow, this is a great piece of advice. So thank you for sharing that at the time you did. No, no. And that's exactly it. I mean, and, and you hit on the words. In my mind, it was the three P's. Pizzazz, which is the energy. If I'm not jazzed about the work, then that's a signal. And then if I think the problems that I'm seeing are ones that I've solved over and over again, that's a second signal. And the third one is I have no patience for solving the same things over again. Like, <laughs> I think okay. that was the piece that got me patience. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and I did, honest to golly, I did find that for myself. I would be sitting there going, oh, I've got to go through this one more time. And that says more about me than it does about the people that are presenting the problem. They're, for them, this is new, this is real, this is something they've got. And for me, it was like, same old, same old, then it's time to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's really important that we're talking about this topic now. Based on the people we've interacted with, what we're reading is this anticipation that we're going to see some big turnover as the COVID pandemic yes. winds down or gets a little more under control, that people haven't been turning over because they've been scared about their job or they're comfortable or, you know, there's so many other crazy things going on in their life. They didn't want to do this. But as things get back to more of a normal state, there are, you know, studies that show and surveys show that, you know, almost half of current employees are thinking about making a job change. So that's huge on both sides. So maybe we start with the employee side is you've had big courage to make some of these moves that you've decided and you've had great results. What, where do you draw from that courage? So if you're, you're talking to some people out there right now that are like, I think I need to do this, you know, for my well-being, for my family, what advice would you give them? I think I would start with what you're saying. People, you know, have sat through this pandemic and didn't move during the pandemic. And now as, as we're beginning to take a breath again, and, and literally this was, a, this is a once in a century kind of event but it does put things in different focus so that it's, I didn't make a move, but it's also, 
it truly brings to the fore, life is short. So if you have things you want to do, it's time to go about them. I, I, I don't know that I would call myself courageous as much as I would say I wasn't afraid of failure. Now, when I say that, I don't want to fail. And I will do everything in my power not to fail. But I also knew about myself, I'd land on my feet. If I take a risk, um, if I would go with a, a company that I thought was right, and it ended up not being, I knew I could figure out a way to land on my feet. If I tried the job, because I remember the first time I went into uh, healthcare, I thought I might not succeed at this. And what I'm giving up is being well-known and established at Motorola and da-da-da-da-da-da. But I thought, well, you know what? Take the risk and enjoy it because you know you're nimble enough to land on your feet. You know, the biggest enemy of people that want to make a change is falling victim to magical thinking. And we do that to ourselves all the time. And, and what I mean by the magical thinking is, we think if something doesn't go exactly right, or we make an error, or a presentation is bad, or we don't do as well as could possibly be expected on a project, we start ourselves down a cycle going, oh, wow, boy, I gave this project and I presented it to Diana, and, and she's the VP, and it really wasn't that impressive. So she's not going to like that now, and she's not going to remember me in a good way. And what if she gets to a point where she's got to cut people from her staff? She might think of me first because I didn't do that great of a job on this. Well, that means then I'd have to go look for a job. And what if I didn't find one? Well, how am I going to pay the mortgage? What am I going to do to stay you know, in, in, in a house? I might end up being homeless with no food living under a viaduct. And it's, it's, it's silly, but it's, that's the magical thinking. And, and you've got to not allow yourself to do that. The, also, the other thing is, and, and I do mean this seriously, whenever you get to that point of saying, I'm, I'm too scared to take a risk here, for a professional like we've been and others, take a good look at the people that are homeless, the people that don't have these opportunities, that haven't been blessed with the network and the education and the ability to do it, and suddenly the risks we take come into very clear focus. Does that make sense, Diana? Yeah, at all? yeah no. And, and it's interesting you call it magical thinking. And, and as I coach executives, that's one of the things that I focus a lot on because these are some really talented people yeah. and they're holding themselves back because of this you know, spiraling down once they yeah. start thinking. And, and it's like once you can shift your thinking, wow, anything's possible and you can deal with the consequences. So how do you change that negative to positive thinking and create that energy for good instead of bad, you know? No, and you you know what? You're so articulate about that. It is getting people to say, I can deal with the consequences. And that's the, the thing is, you know, so to coach people like that is brilliant. It's an old saw, but old adages are there for a reason. We sometimes can be our own worst enemies in terms of where we want to go and what we want to accomplish. Yeah, no, so true. Well, let's flip it and say based on your current role, maybe mm -hmm. what you're doing and what advice you have for our talent champions that are trying to retain 
uh, their employees after this craziness. I pulled an article, a recent article that um, you know where I'm happy to share with our audience that talks about their recommendations are, you know, keeping your top performers engaged. So know who those are and make sure you're engaging them recognizing employees because the more you recognize people and i love this this is one of my foundations is recognize what you want more of it creates positive energy listen to employees which sounds basic but you know sometimes we're so busy we don't listen and then they were also suggesting to conduct these stay interviews to really understand how your people are feeling so um, is there anything else you would recommend or things you're doing i think those are all uh, things that actually within the arch we're, we're doing. It's the, the, the way I, I position it to my colleagues in the senior leadership is we're now in a very high touch moment. We're going from no touch to now with employees, it's a high touch. And so we've done some things um, th- that are very specific to that. Um, one of the other things we did is our annual performance reviews are usually done in May or early June. We are all going back to in-office work for at least for two days a week in July, and I deliberately moved the annual performance reviews to July so that a manager will have to be in personal touch at least once in July for a meeting. So I would encourage people to say, if you have annual development conferences between supervisor and uh, employee, switch them to a moment when you're coming back in the office or move your annual performance reviews out. Um, Make it a requirement that every leader does some one-on-one in person as you come back in with the employees. I think that's going to be really, really, really critical. And I think the other piece of this is the encouragement and the coaching that you talked about. I know I've noticed you're really good at even people that don't work directly for you, but people that you're working with at a conference or something, you're very good about acknowledging, thank you for that. That was really good what you just did. Or, wow, I got something out of that. That's a strong suit of yours, I've noticed. And I'm sure at McDonald's, they love to see that. In this environment, there people that remained loyal and worked hard from home, there's enough evidence out there that most people their workday expanded while they're working at home. So, you know, the old ridiculous concern of if I have people working at home, they're not going to do their job. Well, what we found out is they're working harder and longer. We need to acknowledge that. We need to come forward and say, I want to thank you for being with us, being present with your job at a time when the world was on fire. And and that's not an exaggeration, you know, and think about it. If I was you know, a 30-something person uh, or early 40s and had a family and kids and suddenly people were dying in the millions around the globe, I would not sure that I'd be able to focus completely on my job. And, And so to thank them for it, to engage with them as a human being, that human touch, I think, is a critical piece that it's going to keep people loyal. I couldn't agree more. In a recent Forbes article, 
they have a quote in there that says, if you're a supervisor trying to keep your team from leaving, focus on creating an irresistible work environment. I love that. Yes. An irresistible that. work environment and making sure you pay your people fairly. Because even if you treat them well, if they can make more money someplace else, there's a really strong carrot for them to jump ship. And right. I think employers, I've talked to leaders that say, gosh, if I would have known they would have left for this, I would have taken care of them. So do it before they leave. Plant that seed in their mind that they think they could be paid somewhere else more. And and that's and that's critical. I would add to that, position it as part of the total rewards. So for example, we know in a church organization like the Archdiocese, we're not going to be the top dollar employer. Okay. We're just not, that's not the nature of it. But when you start packaging together other things that we provide, it becomes attractive. So we're, for example, very generous with paid time off. We're very generous um, about during the summer, having Friday afternoons, early dismissals. We're very good about supporting families. We have uh, obviously, uh, paid parental leave for for everybody, but we have a very strong, strong identity that says, um, for example, bereavement for us. Normally, if you look at bereavement in an organization, three days, maybe five, that to us is totally inadequate, totally inadequate. And so we go much broader. So you begin to position it around the totality of what what you've got to do that. And in some cases, that's going to make up for not being able to pay solely top dollar, I think. Yeah, I love that change. Instead of saying, making sure you pay your people fairly, make sure that you compensate them. And compensation is much broader than just the paycheck. Exactly. So yeah. excellent point. See, I keep learning and adjusting and improving based on my interaction with you, Justin. You just proved oh, it again. You're, so fun. you're so. so fun. All right. Well, let's shift a little bit because one thing, another thing we have in common is we've both worked in the human resource function as well as learning or training. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the differences. Now, I started my career in talent in HR as a specialist, and then I became a generalist, and then I moved into learning and development, which my undergraduate was in teaching. So I found my niche being in learning and development because it was giving back and helping give knowledge instead of kind of problem solving and a lot of... Um, reactive behaviors I found in HR. And actually, I tried to change that when I was uh, HR specialist. My undergraduate um, leadership paper was on how could you make HR more, you know, proactive versus reactive. So I'd love to just maybe get some of your thoughts about working in both. And is there a way that we could bring these two groups to collaborate at a higher level since you've been on both sides and you've been on both sides at a higher leadership level? I never thought I would do senior HR. I never thought I would be a chief human resource officer because it was not something that I, I longed for. I, I thought was a natural progression. Quite frankly, there's parts of HR that I would like, if I had a choice of doing that part of HR or getting poison ivy, I might choose poison ivy on a given <laughs> day. It's one of those things. It's like, okay, sitting down and talking about healthcare co-pays is for me like, please 
if fates would let a meteor come through the roof right now and come in the middle of the conference table so we could end this meeting, it would be great. Uh, you know, and I jokingly say that because there are people, thank God, who dedicate their vast talents to figuring that stuff out for us. But I would say this, I have a passion for the learning function. I've always had that passion. I love to see the sparks the, that go on, that when that ignition happens and there's a spark and they're able to do something better, faster, quicker, or with greater clarity, with greater creativity, or they suddenly just get a new idea and come to a realization, to me, that's one of the greatest gifts that any one human being can help another human being realize. It's one of the things that separates us from the animal kingdom. It really is. And for me, that, that that's always been a passion. You asked earlier about how do you know it's time to make a change? I knew early on in my career and the opportunities had presented themselves at Motorola and others, I did not want to go into operations. When I was asked to serve as CHRO for the archdiocese, frankly, one of the reasons I agreed to do it was it's the values, it's the, it's the mission of the church, which is my church, I agreed to do it. What I found is there are parts of HR now that I kind of enjoy more than I thought I would. It's things around where we just engaged in a large compensation study, and I'm watching that and I'm seeing the pieces come together, and that's kind of fun. Um, as we're looking at policy changes that we're putting into place because of what we learned in the pandemic about remote work and things like that. Those are those are kinds of things working with my people that are fun. The, the one thing I did find that I had to adjust to, learning leaders have a lot of brush fires. We know that, okay? The programmatic things and things like that. I will say it's nothing compared to what hits a CHRO's desk, okay? There, you know that from your own mm -hmm. experience, right? Okay? So uh, true. It, you know, a CHRO or a senior person in HR, there are fires in every in every basket every day. Um, and one of the things I learned was those fires need to be attended to by others because I have to get rid of the noise. If I don't get rid of the noise, I'm never going to do anything strategic that will help us avoid the fires in the future. So I've got to have a team that supports the work by putting out the fires so that my job is to make sure we have ways of avoiding those fires in the future. And that's been a real mindset change. I think that's that piece about, you know, you said more strategic and I said being more proactive because if you just stay on the ground level and this was in my book, you will be in this jungle doing the work. And you that's could, exactly what it is. You, you could end jungle. up being in the wrong jungle. You know, you got to be strategic and you've got to go up the trees and make <laughs> sure that you're moving in the right direction and your team is aligned for the purpose of where the company needs to go. So I think you said that so well in regards no, but to I, I a lot of noise comes to your way a lot of noise or as you say it's like okay if i'm looking from the top of the tree and i'm in the wrong forest that's a real problem so in this case you don't even get to the top of the tree if you don't do it so for me um, um and actually i think it's good for my team because i don't then interfere and i mean that because senior people we do have a tendency at times to say well i'm going to poke around in this it's like okay i have no business so one of the things I, I, I historically have told 
my direct reports once I got to a, a fairly senior level. I told the directors that worked for me, every project your team is doing and everything you guys are doing, there's going to be a point where I'm going to start asking you detailed questions. And it's perfectly okay for you to say, you don't need to know that because you don't know enough about the background. That's too detailed. Stay out of it. And they would look at me like, I wonder if he's serious. And I am absolutely because I found out at times I would poke around in things I had no business poking around in. So perfectly fair to say, <clears throat> tell me to back off. I don't know enough about this. And that helps me stay strategic. Yeah, that's so funny you're saying that because I just had flashbacks too. My my approach was I love doing the learning stuff. I love all yes. aspects of it. And so if somebody asks me, I'm going to give give input. But then because I'm the officer in charge of it, the directors, senior directors would come back and say, did you change the direction? I'm like, no, no, no. I was just sharing some insights yeah, or experience. Right. So so I trained my employees to say, is this <laughs> input or is it direction? And so I, I, try, I try to say, hey, I'm just excited. And, and, and sometimes you just can't be in those meetings because it's hard to keep your mouth shut because you're excited. But you have to preference it that, you know, I'm just weighing in because I enjoy it. You need to do what's right for you and what your leaders, uh, you know, are agreed to but that's what makes you a, a great leader because the ability to to admit to yourself you know there are times when i don't know enough here or this is my excitement but not where my focus is um you know we've all worked for leaders that sometimes don't do that they think they are expert in everything you know um and so for you to come forward and say you know um this is just input i'm just this is my enthusiasm do what you need to do is is great because it, it separates out. This is what I've got to do because this is where my expertise is. And it acknowledges to other people. It's like, okay, you got somebody who's enthusiastic who may not really know this and that's fine. Right. Yeah. And it's not even just you're enthusiastic. It's where does the company need you? They need you in those yes. higher roles to be strategic. They're counting on you. I had great people that worked for me at the director, senior director level that coached me to be a better leader. So be open to feedback, especially from, you know, those below you. So really, that's really, that's really important. I mean, one of the lessons I learned, I love to teach in front of a group and I'm, I'm good at it. I know mm -hmm. I'm good at it. Very good. But I, I also found that I had to guard myself because I could easily fill up. I could teach this class. I could teach that class. And then people would be going, and what's happening to the rest of the work? Gosh, we could talk for hours, but let's let's keep moving forward. And the next topic I'd like to touch on, because it is a high concern for people right now, is stress levels are high. So people are reporting that they feel more stressed than they ever have. You know, men mental uh, health and how do we help people be well physically and mentally is a huge topic that I know our talent champions are dealing with or will be dealing with. And it's it's every leader that has people interacting with them you know they need to make sure that they're helping people especially if there's signs that they might be challenged with the stress level you have just rolled with the punches you've had a lot of craziness in your career as we've shared back and forth um, but you come across very even toned and especially you know clear thinking when you need to so what are some of the things that you do to stay calm and to reduce your stress level during the pandemic, I will tell you that there were times when I was not calm uh, because we were dealing with so much unknown, 
not to be dramatic, some of the decisions we were making were between what are we doing that might get people killed and infected and what we weren't. And, and the first thing is you've got to recognize when you are overly stressed yourself. And, and we all know what the signs are. They're different for, other, for everybody. Uh, but, you know, it's everything from I become short tempered, maybe, or um, uh, I'm, I'm pacing or I'm stress eating. You or know, I can't people, sleep. That's mine. I, I sleep. Yeah, there's all sorts of these that, that we got. And once you see those, you need to pull yourself back. You know, I also have, know myself well enough that I have to always ask in, in a period like of significant quick change. I usually have a coach or a colleague that I say, if you find that I'm starting to become short with people or not listening well, you need to call me out about it. You need to tell me that this is not good. So that's one of the things. You gotta have a trusted ally that can say the emperor or the empress has no clothes. That's really a critical thing. And you have to listen to them. You can't yes but it. So, you know, if I've got one colleague who's wonderful at the arch and I, I love him to death. And I remember him calling me one morning during the pandemic and saying, you were really mean the last two days. And I was like, well, you, mm -hmm -hmm. and then I went, well, okay. He's absolutely right. And I knew I was stressed. So that's, that's one thing uh, for me, I've got to exercise if I don't. And that was hard when the gyms closed because I'm, I've been a gym rat. And I ended up getting myself a, a treadmill and there, and I did not let it become a clothes rack, but still that wasn't kind of enough sort of stuff. So you have to figure out uh, what you're going to do. Um, the, the thing that I've also done for the organization is we were finding the workday was expanding and people were taking calls at 6.30 at night, 7 o'clock or 7 a.m., 6.30 a.m., not on the rare occasion, but it was becoming more common. As the senior HR person responsible for employee wellness, I had to throw a flag on that play. And so what we did is to say to staff, I don't care if it's your boss calling, when you're done for the day, you're done, okay? The boss will wait. We put in no Zoom meetings, no online kind of teams meetings but or conference calls between 12 and 1 every day. People needed to be able to get up and do something else, even if it was just read, read something they needed to see. Not allowed. Thursday afternoons became no meeting afternoons. So you could do the work that you were getting caught up on. So those all helped. Um, and then for me, the other thing that I did and um, I, I encourage other people to do is sometimes I would just, you know, click on the, uh, the team's meeting thing and ring, ring up a colleague and say, how's your day? Or just say, you know, hey, I knew you were going to see so-and-so last weekend. How did it go? Just a moment of human touch made a big difference. So yeah. for me, those were all things that I could do.
Yeah. And I tell you, since I've met you, we've interacted and we've taught a lot together. You role model that. So you will be, you know, wait a minute, we got up early and we met before class. I need to get to the gym. I'm going to be taking an hour off this afternoon. Or as we've eaten a lot of meals together, as we were teaching, you were (laughs) like, nope, that looks good, but I'm not going to be able to work off that many calories today. I'm going to be doing this instead. And I think that's one thing that you know, we touched on in my last podcast with Jack Groppel as far as uh, mm. the corporate athlete is you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take right. care of yourself before you can take care of others. And that's like you said, the exercise, you know, taking care of your stress, making sure that you're sleeping and doing the things that you need to do. Because as you mentioned, it is individualized. You've got to find the right things and then you've got to eat right. You've got to do those things and you've got to put yourself first. And if you don't, you're going to not be able to, you know, perform at the highest level and you're not going to be happy. I've been on both sides and I like the happy side better. It is perfectly good and wholesome to put yourself first because ultimately, if you don't do that, you are of no value to the organization either. So you you hit on it. There's times when you have to put yourself first. That's a critical thing. Good. Well, we've talked about a bunch of things, and I know you are wonderful with just every time I've asked you about something, you give me some resources um, because you're so well read and, and connected. Is Do you have any, a few resources that you would recommend to our listeners to go deeper in some of the topics we've talked about, whether it's navigating your career or taking care of yourself or reducing stress or how do you collaborate even stronger with HR and, and learning Um, Any advice or resources that you would share? For me, at this point, it's not so much about reading the article uh, as much as it is about making sure I'm talking to colleagues. Pick up the phone. I learn more in a 15-minute call uh, with you or or other colleagues um, about stuff that's going on than I can often do from reading an article. Because I, an article, you lose the color, the color commentary. People say, well, you need to do this, try that. But you talk to them about it as opposed to just reading about it. It makes a big difference. One of the things that's really important is ground yourself in your reading, not just on technical subjects, but on subjects around your own wellness and wholeness and whether that's uh, physical wholeness, uh, emotional intelligence, um, spiritual guidance uh, that you need for yourself, that, that you've got to do that. And if you're not attending to all three of those domains, it's not good for you. So for me, it's the human touch, that interaction um, with people that are smarter than me. That's the key thing. That's the way I approach it at this stage of my life. Great. Well, I love asking this question of my guests because I just continue to learn more about a, an individual is who is one person from your past that's had the greatest influence on where you are today? Oh, for me, without a doubt, it's Bill Wiggenhorn, um, you know, who was the president of Motorola University. I watched him build it. I watched him take risks. I watched him send us out there, you know, out into the cold, cruel world. Um, in a large company that didn't want to accept the vision of continuous learning, okay? 
and he sent us out there as kind of the missionaries, you know, and we were hoping we would all come back from the various jungles. Uh, but he was a great role model and a great coach. He always figured out a way to think differently about a problem. And to this day, um, sometimes I'll call him and say, what do you think? And I still get great advice. Now, we've both been blessed. His path crossed mine based on a, a mutual friend. And when I was running Hamburg yeah. University and at McDonald's and just gave me some great advice as far as keep learning, because if you don't, you'll get left behind. And I just Ooh. some very impactful things. So thanks yeah. for sharing that. So as we get ready to wrap up, do you have any final piece of advice for our talent champions? The only final advice I would get is give is as we come out of this horrible state that we've been in, um, take a moment to breathe and find the value that you were able to bring in the last 12 months for you and your team and celebrate that. Celebrate that. There's an ancient tradition, and it's a religious tradition, of after a plague, after wars, there's the great giving of thanks. It is a tradition that moves beyond just Christians or Jews or Muslims. It's, it's a religious tradition, a faith tradition that hits everybody, almost every faith, that moment of giving thanks. And I guess you can do that professionally and personally, and I think it's important to do it for, as a talent leader professionally. Give thanks for what you've been through what you and your group accomplished and uh, and make make that feel good as you move forward. That's that's a little bit of useless advice I have. So No, I love that. Love it. So how can our listeners get in touch with you or continue to learn more from you? Hopefully they can hit me up on LinkedIn is one of the things. Um, <clears throat> and I think as you and I know, we're both still engaged with the chief learning officer, uh, various activities and things. And those are probably the best ways to uh, get in touch with me right now. Great. Well, I want to end this podcast saying thank you, thank you, giving thanks for you for making the time. You continue to live your mission about wanting to give back and help others grow. I know I learn and grow every time we interact and so appreciative for your friendship and your guidance and giving advice and just keeping things real. So thanks, Justin. It's been a blast as always. Thanks a lot. And I will talk to you again soon. Take care. Here's the summary of today's episode. Being a lifelong learner is one of the most important factors that has helped Justin to be successful in a variety of roles and industries. Throughout our discussion, Justin touched on three major themes of his continual learning throughout his career. One, listening to other people, whether those are the people around him in his own organization or part of his broader network. Two, studying the things that don't go well, which can be your own mistakes or those made by your colleagues. And three, reading deeply and broadly on new subjects discussing what you don't understand with people who are experts on the topic. Feeling that you can't make many more significant contributions in your current role is an important thing that might be a trigger that it's time to move on, whether it's into a new role or an entirely new organization. 
two other triggers are a lack of energy about the work and a lack of patience for solving problems. Life is short. Don't be afraid to take risks professionally. Justin points out that the biggest enemy of people who want to make a change is the downward spiraling of thinking that it'll result in a disaster. Those of us that are blessed with opportunities, networks, and education have the ability to land on our feet, but we have to believe we can do it. As work transitions back to the office, and many people may be thinking about making career moves that they've delayed the last year, companies are concerned about retaining their people. Justin says senior leaders are in a high-touch moment, meaning that we need to be very intentional about one-on-one time with employees and thank them for all that they've done to get the organization through the past year. Being competitive on salary is important to retaining employees, but you can also look at the total compensation package. What does your organization offer in benefits that other organizations can't or don't do? Justin talked about the generous time off policy at the Archdiocese that helps to close the wage gap. You have to cut down on the noise around you in order to focus on strategic priorities that will help ward off problems in the future. Justin learned that he needed to delegate the daily fires on the desk of a senior HR leader to his team so that he could work on avoiding future fires. Senior leaders have to find ways to stay out of the weeds, even when it feels like that's where the exciting work is happening. When you are overly stressed, you engage in certain behaviors or exhibit particular signs in your body. These should prompt you to take a step back and deal with your stress first and foremost. It can be helpful to designate a trusted friend or colleague to help you recognize the signs as well. If you can't prioritize your self-care, your usefulness to the organization quickly diminishes. Finally, celebrate the wins. We've all been through a difficult once-in-a-century year. As you return to the pre-pandemic life, take a moment to give thanks for what you've accomplished. Please join us next month for our 50th episode, where we will continue the conversations around relevant and engaging Talent Champions topics. And sign up at talent-champions.com to receive bonus information from our guest and to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. Be sure to check out the full Franklin Covey Podcast Network by searching Franklin Covey on your favorite podcast provider.